The following talk was given by Jeffrey Sugar Arnold Roshi during a Fusatsu ceremony at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugen Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Vasatsu is, uh, we speak of it as renewal of vows. And so we reflect on our, the actions in our lives that have been unskillful, that have hurt others, over which we may carry regret and remorse, and we atone. We invoke the names of the Buddha, the Buddhas, historical, the Bodhisattvas, non-historical, who all embody the examples and qualities of realized lives, compassionate, clear. And we invoke those Buddhas and Bodhisattvas into this hall, into our own beings. That's where they come from. That's what they're, um, we practice to awaken. And then we take vows, or we chant the four bodhisattva vows. What I wanted to talk about this morning is is liturgy, being in the midst of it, to say a little bit about liturgy. If the essential um, purpose of Buddha Dharma is is to cease from harm, to diminish the harm that we create in the world, and bring it to cessation, to bring good into the world, and to let that benefit others. So we're actually, our lives are actually being, are beneficial forces in the world towards humans and all beings. And to do that, we have to study and realize the mind. That's why we are sitting in a hall of Buddhas, and a hall of Buddhas is a meditation hall. Dada Roshi in the Eight Gates talked about liturgy in this way. He said, liturgy can be considered an affirmation or restatement of the common experience of a community. In Buddha Dharma, the emphasis is on the ground of being, Buddha nature, which is not separate from self-nature. All of Zen's rites and rituals are constantly pointing to the same place, the realization of no separation between the self and the 10,000 things, liturgy is upaya. It is skillful means. This common experience that he speaks of, the ground of being, Buddha nature, no separation, is dependent origination. This very, very profound teaching of the Buddha. I've read scholars who've said that it's so deep that teaching of dependent origination, that, there, that they had doubts that the Buddha could have begun teaching that from the beginning, have realized that, that clearly from the beginning, but that it must have evolved over time. But that's not how the Buddha presented it. That all things arise within a web of causality and conditions, 
which is a, 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 another way of speaking about dependent origination, but um, is most profound. That nothing exists independently, everything is empty of self-existence, nothing is, stands in utter aloneness or isolation, nothing is autonomous. And in this way, we fall together and we rise together. We are deluded together and we are enlightened together. That's the bodhisattva view of reality. And that's how we practice. So when the Buddha at his enlightenment said, all beings and I together enter the way at the same time, he was invoking those basic truths. And so in liturgy is expressing and practicing and realizing and offering, very important, offering our clear understanding, our selflessness, our compassion. As Dada says, it is upaya, skillful means. All that we do essentially is upaya, and we do it because it is skillful means. That's why we engage in the forms of practice we do. So I wanted to say a little bit about oryoki. And for you, those of you who may not be familiar with it, oryoki is a, a liturgy. You could say it's kind of like a blending of liturgy and meditation, body practice, <laughs> in the experience of having a meal. So in its full form, we have do orioki here in the zendo at our seats with nested bowls, servers bring in the food, and we do liturgy throughout the meal, chanting. And so we could talk about liturgy, think about liturgy as, such as the service we did this morning, we're in the midst of liturgy, chanting, offering incense, sounding of instruments, prostrations, chanting sutras, chanting sacred texts, like the identity of relative and absolute, chanting Dharanis, offering the merit to others. So all of those are elements of liturgy, but they're not liturgy itself. You can speak of an orchestra as violins, cellos, violas, the wind section, the horn section, the percussion section, but that's not an orchestra. It's a collection of musicians and their instruments. There has to be music for there to be an orchestra. That's their purpose. And they're not really an orchestra until there's music. So what is an orchestra really? What is liturgy? It utilizes all of those components, but it's not those components or even the sum of those parts. And so in Oryoki, we have a simple meal, right? Oatmeal, fruit, rice. We practice it within meditation, sitting in the meditation posture and doing meditation. It is a mindfulness practice. It is a meditation meal. We are receiving food, receiving life, and we are giving life. We are receiving it from the servers, and we return what we receive with a bow. We receive the opportunity to do orioki from the Buddhas before us, and so we make an offering to the Buddhas before the meal even begins. 
It is realizing self and other as having the same nature. It is a practice of studying and understanding that every action has consequence. So when we have a meal, we are both in the midst of many actions that have brought that meal to us, and those actions have consequence. All of that is taking place within Oriyogi and more. And it is a practice that is being brought into our awareness, and it is more. So we begin the meal, Oriyogi, with an offering to the Buddha. We are here because of this person. If the Buddha hadn't been born, according to Buddhism, somebody else would have been born and would have been enlightened as the Buddha was, but it was the Buddha, Shakyamuni, this particular person, in a particular time in history, in a particular place. And so we make an offering to the Buddha for, for his and all the enlightened beings' efforts who have come down and brought us down to us. And we acknowledge the important moments in the Buddha's life, which he himself, in the sutra that we're studying, said, these are the important moments in a Buddha's life. And when the Buddha is speaking of a Buddha, he's not just speaking of himself, he's speaking of all the Buddhas in Buddhist sort of cosmology who have ever appeared and will appear. And so we, exp- we acknowledge the place where he was born, the place where he was enlightened, the place where he taught first, and the place where he entered nirvana. Taking note, expressing reverence and, and, and appreciation for those important moments. And then we chant the names of the historical and non-historical Buddhas, just as we did this morning. Teachers who taught in the flesh and bodhisattvas who teach in other ways. And in in the liturgy that we chant, the words that we chant, the teachings that we chant, we remember that this meal comes from the efforts of all sentient beings, past and present, and that its advantages give us physical and spiritual well-being. So this food is sustenance, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. It is sustaining us. Seventy-two labors brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. So we reflect on those labors, right? The most recent one being the server who stands before us and offers us this food, but then on down into the kitchen and our noble cooks who give their energy to give energy to us. And then on and on and on. All of those, think about it, all of the... I mean, 72 is just a start. (laughs) just to bring us our oatmeal. And so we remember that and, and, and think, reflect on how, down, how does it come to us, all of those labors, the, all of those good efforts, and the unintended negative consequences that may be part of that as well. As we receive this offering, we should consider whether our virtue and practice deserve it. Everyone deserves to have food. It's not like if you've not done well today, you go to your room. No breakfast for you. That's not what it's saying. Everyone deserves to have food. It's as we are being sustained, as we are receiving this, just a moment to reflect. How am I doing? What am I doing? How small is my life? How big is my life? 
How small is my intention? How big is my intention? We are receiving life. We are receiving an offering. What do we give back? Dadaroshi used to say, if we only receive and don't give back, then we're kind of like a thief. So what is the responsibility or even our obligation in receiving this? What do we return? How are we living this life? As practitioners, we study closely, intimately, this interdependent web, this intricate web, and the intimate tapestry of giving and receiving, that the whole world is in a constant state of giving and receiving. And that we should not take this for granted In desiring the natural order of mind to be free from clinging, we must be free from greed. Seeking, practicing to realize the natural order of mind, it directs our attention very directly, very simply, that if we want to be free of our attachments, we have to give up our greed. Our wanting beyond what is necessary, beyond what is good, what is skillful so that we can see things as they are, boundless and vast and bright, immediate. Oriyoki means, it refers to the bowl, the bowls, and it means the right amount. What is the right amount? And how appropriate that it's, that all of this takes place within a meal, right? Because food has that quality of actually being good, right? When it's good, it's good, right? It tastes good. And we make it to taste good. That that's a part of it, is the pleasure of a well-prepared meal. That it is pleasing to our senses. It's not just nourishment, right? We could just throw it all in a blender (laughs) and give you a straw, right? It's, It's good that it is good. It's good that it is pleasurable. Why? That's part of its nourishment. It lifts our spirit. It brings us that moment of enjoyment and appreciation for the goodness of food and a meal well prepared. And the care that had to go into it to make it that way. That's giving. That's the cooks giving their appreciation for the Sangha, their love for the Sangha, their concern for the Sangha. And so what is the right amount? Because food can be many different things. Food can be complicated. Food isn't complicated, but we can be complicated around food, right? And so it's a time to also be aware of what are the various hungers that we might be feeding as we have our simple meal. And that all of this, from the point of view of the Bodhisattva path, is all of this and so that we can live our life and practice and give our lives away. That that's the purpose of life. It's not just to have a party. It's not just to get rich and famous. It's not just to avoid blame. It's to give our lives away. Liberation is attained by giving all Liberation is that which I seek, Shanti Deva says. Therefore, I will give it all away. And it is best to give it to you, to others. And in order to do that, we have to free ourselves. That's what the Buddha realized. As Dada Roshi used to say, if we want to 
free save all sentient beings. If we want to alleviate the suffering of sentient beings, we have to be prepared to have our own suffering alleviated, to be saved ourselves. But who is this other that we vow to serve, to help awaken, to alleviate from suffering? And who in this intricate web of causation are we relying upon? Are we benefiting from in order to do this? And so we chant, first this food is for the three treasures. And this liturgy, by the way, goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Dogen chanted, and his sangha chanted these, these very same words with very, very slight alterations. First, this food is for the three treasures. So before we take our first bite, we turn our minds to the Buddha, to the Dharma, and to the Sangha, and we offer it in our mind. Right? So while we're chanting these words, we shouldn't just be looking at our food and thinking about how hungry we are, and I can't wait until the first bite, and can we please get through with the chanting? <laughs> we should be invoking the three treasures first. In a sense, we've already been invited to the table, but before we begin to eat, we invite every, every other essential being to the table. First is food for the tree three treasures, and offer our gratitude. Because we would not be here, we would not be doing this, but for those three treasures. Second, it is for our teachers, parents, nations, and all sentient beings. And this is referred to in some renditions of this simply as the four benefactors. And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is that over the years, periodically, a student would come by, or students would come forward and say, what about nation? Parents, teachers, sentient beings, but nation. Saying that nation sounds, is like nation state, sounds like we're supporting nationalism, and all of the, the harmful things that a nation can do. So I wanted to talk about that. And that because that has come up, periodically over the years, the teachers, the teachers council recently got together, and I said, let's talk about this. Let's think about this, right? Is this skillful means? We're chanting this every day. We're inviting the Sangha, asking the Sangha to invoke these words. So let's look at this. Originally, we, and for years, we just chanted nation, one, meaning this one, this country, this nation. And, and so we reflected on that and thought, well, we don't just mean this nation, right? It's like just liberating this sentient being. No, we want all sentient beings to be liberated. So we want all nations to be part of this. And so we pluralized it. And acknowledging that nations, countries, their governments, their leaders, their institutions, as they conduct themselves in each nation, can oppress people, whole nations of people, groups of people. They can thrive. Nations and those leaders and institutions can perpetuate, create, perpetuate, and thrive on wealth inequality, on violence, on suppression, suppression of rights, suppression of equality, that the very idea of a nation as having a fixed and closed boundary, that very idea has been the cause of tremendous harm. In fact, we might say 
arguably that nations as, as a, a, a collective force have perpetuated the worst harm that we as human beings have perpetuated. That a nation and all of its forces and sort of institutions can make the voice of one or a few a million times larger and a million times more dangerous. All of that is true. So then why do we include that in, as one of the four benefactors? And of course, our own country is past and presently guilty of much of that. So we, you know, to, to examine that, really if we want to examine that, we have to, we have to step back a bit and say, well, what is liturgy? Right? What is orioki? Because that word is taking place within a phrase, which is taking place within a larger body of, of liturgy that we're chanting, which is taking place within the whole context of a meal, which is a practice, which is a skillful means. So what is orioki? What are we doing in that? Right? And this is important because rather than just focusing on the word and its meaning, Right? which in a way narrows it down to just the meaning is all it is and all the power that it has. But nothing's like that. Nothing is fixed. Nothing has an absolute value. The value that it has is given to it by us, individually, collectively, historically. And so what is the function of the liturgy of Orioki? What are we trying to, what are we invoking? What are we trying to create? What are we trying to remember, bring into our consciousness? What are we trying to make visible? Dadaroshi often spoke about liturgy as making visible the invisible. What is invisible that we are trying to bring out? So these were, this is how we discuss it. This is how I think about things. What are we invoking into our minds? What are we offering? And so if we look at that, it is for our teachers, parents, nations, and all sentient beings. Well, we're indebted to our teachers. We couldn't be here without them. Not just the Buddha. Right? If there were no teachers that had followed the Buddha's lifetime, we wouldn't be here. There would be no Buddhism. And so we're indebted to our teachers for the teachings, the Dharma that they offer us, for the guidance that they provide with us. We're indebted to our parents for giving us life for nourishing us as we grow. We celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day. Teaching us, and of course, you know, to talk about a teacher or a parent, those are words that are describing individuals, and so not every experience we have with those different people are perfect by any means. Sometimes they're not actually that positive. But generally speaking, when we think of teachers and parents, that's what we're invoking. Is all of that good? We're indebted to nations of the world for providing us with things that large and complex societies need. Necessary for life, individually, socially, culturally, nationally. And we're indebted to the people of our world, all sentient beings that we share our world with. And in so many ways, we depend upon and yet, at the same time, none of those benefactors are perfect in their manifestation or in their ability 
to fulfill that particular role of being a teacher, of being a parent, of being a nation, of being a sentient being. Perfection is a, is a concept. It's an idea. Teachers are human beings. They teach for the sake of human beings. They teach through their humanity. That is part of the potential power to inspire and guide, to be able to relate to. I've been thinking a lot about AI. So what if? Right? You just, I mean, I don't know anything about this really, but you say, give me a talk about the Dharma, right? <laughs> and then we just have a recording. No. Even if it was exactly the same words, it's a human thing, human to human, person to person, alive to alive. But that very humanity also, if it's not clear, when it's not clear, to the degree that it is still deluded, acts out of delusion, can confuse, can harm, can obstruct one's access to the Dharma, can do harm. So when we offer this food to our teachers, we're offering it to them for the life they give us through the Dharma so that we can bring forth our aspirations, our practice, our commitments, our efforts in this lifetime to all the good that teachers give to us. And to we offer it also to further support their practice, their enlightenment, their compassion to minimize or bring to cessation any harm that they might do. Because they're a whole being. And when we alleviate this, when we bow to alleviate suffering, we mean the whole of it. Parents are human beings who can and largely do immense good, and they can also do harm. We know that. And so we offer this food for all the good that they give to us, and the world, and also we offer that to help free them from their delusions and entanglements and any suffering that they might be creating. Nations are collections of human beings that can do great good, tremendous good, and serve the people and the world. And at the same time, are responsible for some of the greatest suffering we have ever known, the world has ever known. And so we offer this food and our lives to all the good that nations give and can give, and at the same time, to bring forth wisdom and compassion and justice and equity and freedom to all of the ways in which nations can oppress and subjugate and distort. All sentient beings are sentient beings. There are wise ones and there are fools, there are compassionate ones and there are evil ones. And many, most people, you know, travel along the spectrum, right? No human being is all and only good and no human being is all and only bad. There are honest and dishonest people, people trying to build a better world, trying to destroy this world. You know, I realize that making my life here with all of you, <laughs> I could forget sometimes, right? You know, I think, wow, people are really great. They're trying so hard. They care so much. They're dedicating their lives. And it's like, 
true and. <laughs> and so we offer this food in our life, in our life's energy, to encouraging all of the loving and caring aspects of sentient beings and to shifting and diminishing and awakening and liberating those same beings from hateful and greedy and confused actions and thoughts and words. Because we depend on all of these for our well-being. When they act well, we benefit. And we can more easily thrive. We can more easily find our way to a path. We can more easily take care of each other. When they act poorly, we all suffer. I was talking to a, a Buddhist teacher recently who's a member of a Sangha in which one of their main teachers acted poorly. And it's had painful, harmful effects to their Sangha. And, and they were acknowledging that. And I said, it hurts all of us. As Buddhists, it, it hurts me personally. We're all affected. When those four benefactors act poorly, we all suffer. It's harder to take care of our basic needs. It's harder to take care of each other. Nations and governments and their institutions give us food and water and electricity and heat. The materials we need for life, rules of governance, courts and legal systems, checks and balances, rights and privileges. They don't offer those equally. They don't offer them equally to all of their members. And too often they don't offer them hardly at all. But they exist. They do exist in our world. And existing, they have a role to play. And just as we have a role, if we're not stepping up to our role and our responsibility, we need that's our business, right? And we need help. And when others, parents, teachers, nations, all sentient beings, are not living up to their responsibility, their obligations, they have a responsibility to do that. And they need help. And so we offer that measure of help through our liturgy. And so as we discussed, and we discussed, we thought about different words we could use, different ways of expressing it. And I went into that conversation thinking, we're going to change this. We're probably going to change this. And it was very interesting, just as the conversation unfolded, and we considered these different things, and we're considering these things, that we came back and said, you know, this is important. It's not necessarily the easiest thing, right? We could say something that didn't invoke any question or doubt or introduce any tension, but that's not really what liturgy does. <laughs> that's not what the teachings do. They guide, they bring forth all of our good qualities, but they also do that by creating some waves so that we do stop and say, wait a minute, what does that mean? How am I supposed to understand that? Because in a sense, if it's too self-evident, if it's too straightforward, I know what that means, and I just pass right by. That's the danger. And so we chose to continue to include this in our daily liturgy so we could each day, at every meal, bring into our mind these offerings to these four benefactors, cognizant 
of all that they are, all of the good, all of the not good, and make an offering so that we can study and unburden the mind of ourselves, our teachers, parents, nations, and all beings. Words themselves have no inherent value. They have no inherent meaning. We give them meaning. So words become powerful because of that agreed-upon meaning, by how they're used, by culture. And words are also, like all things, impermanent. They change. And so words that have been used in positive ways can become negative, harmful weapons. Words that were used in harmful ways can be transformed, can be, in a sense, reclaimed to have a positive action. So we might think of nation in that way, for the negative ways in which it can be used, or the negative connotation that may bring up into the mind. Reclaim that. Transform that. In our invocations and expressions of making visible the invisible, may we together be grateful and cognizant of all that we receive and practice to continually transform. You know, all of those images of the Buddha nature, the seed within the husk, the jewel within a mound of dirt, a treasure that's buried. All of these images that invoke something precious, something powerful, something transformative that is hidden and needs to be brought out. Where that metaphor, as all metaphors do ultimately fail, (laughs) is that it's not hidden. It isn't buried. But it appears to us as hidden. And so upaya... All of is how to reveal what appears to be hidden, how to bring forth and make clear what seems to be obscured, how to practice and transform what does need to change while understanding that nothing has intrinsic value. So in a sense, what is changing is the moment-to-moment causes and conditions that are bringing something forth in a particular form. to free what is bound, to give up what is held too tightly. And so we chant, thus we eat this food with everyone. Why? Why do we eat? To stop all evil, to practice good, and to save all sentient beings, and to accomplish the Buddha way, our Buddha way. Liturgy, as is true of every form of practice, as is true of everything in this blessed world, is alive and miraculous in its aliveness. When we just sit on the surface and look at the surface and say, that's what it is, that aliveness is diminished. We don't see it. And that's why we spend so much time on this cushion looking directly into the face of what we call reality, or mind, or Buddha nature, or karma. All of it's there. So that we can see into and begin to understand deeply and liberate ourselves into that reality that we are, our Buddha nature, our wisdom. And so it's necessary 
for the, the teachings and the practices to challenge us, right? Because there's a natural inclination towards ease and comfort, right? Everybody likes to be comfortable. I like to be comfortable. When we're finished today, I'm going to go and I'm going to sit on the deck <laughs> in the sun. I might listen to some music. You know, I might just look at the trees dancing in the wind. Everybody likes to be comfortable. But we take comfort within samsara and don't see the pain in that. In the same way that we can see a teacher or a parent or a nation and only see pain, or only see good. If that's what we're seeing, we should just know we're not seeing it clearly because nothing is dualistic. And so the teachings have to, in a sense, be provocative. They need to be. We need to be roused. And how to do that in a way that is skillful, right? And so... At the conclusion, and we had a couple of conversations about this, and part of that is just, you know, because usually when those kinds of things are happening, nobody knows, right? Nobody knows what was the process, what is, how do these things happen? And so we said, well, maybe it would be nice to share that a little bit, that process. So there's a sense of the degree to which the teachers, we, I hope you, take this seriously. If we're going to do this, let's do it well. And let's do it thoughtfully. Let's be aware of what we are invoking and maintaining and continuing to, to um, give life to, not just because it's what was given to us, although that does have importance, but because it is still skillful. And so, as a way of sort of speaking that to that that invisible aspect of liturgy that includes but is not chanting and the offering of incense and the sounding of instruments. All of those are part of it, but there's something happening. In the same way that when we sit on this cushion, there is something happening there. We have certain things in our awareness, and those are true and important, but there's more that is happening because we are vast and boundless. That's why this is a mystic path. It isn't just what we perceive through our ordinary ways of seeing and understanding. That's why we, I think, <laughs> I'm imagining why all of us came here, because we were seeking something more than just what you can get at the market. And so in Dogen's teaching on intimate language, he said, the Buddha has intimate language, intimate practice, intimate realization. When you yourself know, then you know intimate action, intimate practice, and intimate language. Intimate means close and inseparable, undivided. Here there is no gap, no division, no walls, no boundaries. The way we or a nation begins on the path of destruction is the believing that the boundary of that nation is a real thing, that it actually divides 
the way a property boundary divides my land from your land. That's just a concept. It can be helpful. It can be destruction, destructive. To know that there is no gap means to know that all things fundamentally empty of that fixedness. That's why realizing that is liberating. Dogen goes on to say, intimacy embraces Buddha ancestors. It embraces you. Intimacy is there is no gap, no wall, no boundary. It embraces Buddha ancestors. It embraces you. It embraces the self. It embraces your actions. It embraces generations, past, present, and future. It embraces embraces all of your merit. It embraces intimacy itself. It's all embracing. When intimate language use in, uh, when intimate language encounters an intimate person, when liturgy encounters an intimate person, the Buddha eye sees the unseen. That's just an exquisite way of saying what do we what is the practice of liturgy? Be an intimate person encountering intimate language. Let your Buddha eye see the unseen. If you've ever been in the midst of liturgy and experienced something, been moved, had an insight, that's a window into what Dogen is speaking about. Intimate action is not known by the self or other. The intimate self alone knows it. Which is another way of saying beyond knowing, beyond understanding. I remember many years ago, um, Shoso, Gary Peacock, who many of you remember, he passed away not too long ago. He was here for his first morning, Sunday morning. And I went downstairs for lunch and I saw him. I didn't, you know, he was here for the first time, so I didn't know who he was. But I saw him in the, in the middle of the dining room and his eyes were this big. And I walked up to him and I said, hi, and I introduced myself. And he didn't want, any, he didn't want anything to do. He said, what, was, what just happened up there? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, in that service. What was, what's going on? He said, never mind. It's none of my business. <laughs> And what he later talked to me about, because he wasn't having anything at that moment, is that he something he experienced something unexpected, unanticipated. He didn't know what it was. It surprised him. He wasn't sure what the hell was going on. But he understood enough to know, let it be. It's not my business to figure this out. He already, and he was a very well-known jazz player. So I think that was part of his um, training to understand nonlinear processes and results. (laughs) That could be a slogan. None of my business. (laughs) To make seen the unseen, make visible the invisible. Intimate communication. I mean, that's, you know, I think such an important part of the faith. 
it's not just the faith that the Dharma is trustworthy, and if we practice and continue practicing, that it will, it will unfold. Yes, absolutely. But the faith that there is more, more, and to want to know, to want to understand what Dogen is speaking about. When Dadaroshi, in my early years, and I didn't know anything about liturgy and had no background in which to understand it or, you know, relate it to anything, and so I was very kind of, I don't know about this, and kind of wait and see. And, but I would listen to him talk about liturgy. And I realized, you experience this in a way that I don't. And I'm intrigued. I'm interested. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org. <laughs>